0: Data validation and conversion is one of the truly tricky parts of getting external data into your app. This might come from a REST API or a file on disk or somewhere else. It includes checking for required fields, the correct data types, converting from potentially compatible types, for example, from strings to numbers if you have quote 7 but not the value 7 and much more. Pydantic is one of the best ways to do this in modern Python using data class like constructs and type annotations to make it all seamless and automatic. We welcome Samuel Colvin, creator of Pydantic, to the show. We'll dive into the history of Pydantic and its many uses and benefits. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 331, recorded April 14th, 2021. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy, and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm, and follow the show on Twitter via at TalkPython. This episode is brought to you by 45 Drives and us over at Talk Python Training. Please check out what we're offering during those segments. It really helps support the show. Hey Samuel.
1: Hi Mike, great to meet you. Very excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. You've been working on one of my favorite projects these days that is just super, super neat, solving a lot of problems, Pydantic, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it.
1: Yeah, as I say, it's great to be here. I've been, I've been doing Pydantic on and off now since 2017, but I guess it was when Sebastian Ramirez started using it on FastAPI a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, I don't know when, that it really like went crazy. And so now it's, it's a lot of work, but it's exciting to see something this popular.
0: I'm sure it's a lot of work, but it, it really seems to have caught the imagination of people and they're really excited about it. So fantastic work. Before we get into the details there, let's start with just your background. how did you get into programming in Python?
1: I did a bit of programming at university, a lot of a bit of MATLAB and a bit of C++. And then my first job after university, I worked on oil rigs in Indonesia of all strange things. There's a lot of time on an Orig rig when you're flat out, and there's a lot of other time when you're doing absolutely nothing, don't have much to do, and so I programmed quite a lot in that time, and I suppose that was when I really got into loving it, rather than just doing it when I had to. And then, I guess, Python from, from there, a bit of JavaScript, a bit of Python ever since.
0: Yeah, really cool. I think things like MATLAB often do sort of pull people in, and they they have to learn a little bit of programming, because it's a pain to just keep typing it into you know whatever the equivalent of the REPL is that MATLAB has. <laughs> create the dot file and you kind of get going and you start to combine them and then all of a sudden you know it sort of sucks you into the programming world when you maybe didn't plan to go that way.
1: I worry maybe other people learn it the right way and sit down and read a book and understand how to do stuff but there's a lot of things that I wish I had known back then that I learned only through reading other code or through banging my head against the wall that would have been really easy learned if someone had, had shown me them but hey we got here.
0: Yeah I think many I'd probably say most people got into programming that way, and I think it's all fine. Yeah. It's all good. So what was living on an oil rig like? That must have been insane.
1: It was pretty peculiar. So half the time I was on land rigs and half the time I was offshore. Offshore, the conditions were a lot better. Land rigs, the food was pretty horrific. And a lot of, they were all, I always did a like a 14-hour night shift, and then occasionally I had to do the day shift as well, and then go on to the night shift. So sleep was a problem. And the heat was a problem. Yeah, it was hard baptism of, of the real work, working world after university, I must say.
0: Yeah, I guess so. Uh, it sounds really interesting. Not an interesting like, wow, I really want to necessarily go out there and, and do it. But it, you just must have come away with some like some wild stories and different perspective.
1: Yeah, lots of stories that I won't retell now. I don't think that's the kind of <laughs> subject matter you want on your podcast. But yeah, I mean, how oil rigs work, well, whatever you think about it and how much we all want to get away from them. Is crazy what you can do, and so being like up against the at the coal face of that was really fascinating. It's kind of like aerospace, but no one minds crashing. So you can innovate, you can try a new thing. You just the faster you can drill, the better. It's all that anyone cares about. Yeah, well, yeah. mostly what they care about.
0: Yeah, it must have been a, a cool adventure. Awesome. So I thought it'd be fun to start our conversation not exactly about Pydantic, but just about this larger story that, a larger space that Pydantic lives in. But maybe to set the stage, give us like a real quick overview of like what problem does Pydantic solve for the world? What is it and what does it solve for the world?
1: So the, the most the simplest way of thinking about it is you've got some user somewhere. They might be on the other end of a web connection. They might be using a GUI. They might be using a client. It doesn't really matter. And they're entering some data and you need to trust the data that you that they put in is correct. So with Pydantic, I don't really care what someone enters. All I care about is that you can validate it to get what you want. So if I need an integer and a string and a list of bytes, all I care about is that I can get to that integer, string, and list of bytes. I don't care if someone entered bytes for the string field as long as I can decode it, or if they entered a tuple instead of a list. But yeah, the, the fundamental problem is people, I suppose in theory, if like intentionally trying to do it wrong, but mostly innocently getting something wrong, trying to coerce data into the, the shape that you want it to be in.
0: Yeah, it's super easy to say like, well, I read this value from a file, and the value in the file is a number, it says one, but you read it as, a, as strings, so the yeah. thing you sent over is quote one, not the number one, and in programming, computers hate that. They don't think those things are the same, unless maybe you're JavaScript and you do it in the right order, maybe but uh, excluding that odd case, right? A lot of times it's just crash wrong data format or whatever we, we expected an integer and you gave us a string. But, you know, Pydantic just looks at it and says, it could be an integer if you want it to be. So we'll just do that.
1: Yeah, and I think it's something that there's been a lot of discussion about on Pydantic's issue tracker. There's an entire label strict about the discussions about how strict we should be. And I def- I think it's fair to say Pydantic compared to its the other libraries is, is more lenient, more keen on if we can try and coerce it into that type, we will. That really started for me trying to make it simple and performant. And I just called the, I decided if something wasn't int by calling int on it and seeing what happened. That had some kind of strange side cases because I called list on something to see if it was a list. And that meant you could put a string of integers, a, a string into a list of ints field. And it would first of all, call list on it, turn it into a list and then call int on each member. And that was completely crazy. So we've got stricter over the years. And I think that in the future Pydantic will have to get a bit stricter. In particular, stuff like coercing from a float to an int quite often doesn't make sense or isn't what people want. But most of the time, just just working is really powerful, really helpful.
0: If there's gonna be some kind of data loss, right? If it's 1.0000, coercing that to one's fine. If it's 1.52, maybe not.
1: Yeah, but it's difficult because we're in the Python world where Python is pretty lenient. So it doesn't mind you adding two floats together. If you call the int function, on a float, it's fine. So it's also trying to be Pythonic at the same time as being strict enough for people, but without doing stuff that obviously without not doing stuff that's obvious because lots of people do just want
0: coercion to work. Right. We'll get into it. There's lots of places to plug in and write your own code and do those kinds of checks if you really need to. Yeah. All right. Carlos has a good question out there in the uh, live stream, but I'm going to get to that later when we get a little bit more into it. First, let's talk about some of the other things. So. Pydantic is surprisingly popular these days, but there's plenty of people, I'm sure, who haven't heard of it, who are hearing about it the first time here. And there's other libraries that try to solve these same type of problems, right? Problem is I've got data in often a dictionary list mix, right? like a list of dictionaries or a dictionary which contains lists, which contains like that kind of object graph type of thing. And I want to turn that into probably a class, probably a Python class of some sort, or understand it in some way. So you know we've got some of the really simple ways of doing this where I just have those, and I want to stash that into a binary form, which is Pickle. Pickle has been bad in certain ways because it can run arbitrary Python code. That's not ideal. There's another related library called Quickle, which is like Pickle, but doesn't run arbitrary code, and that's pretty nice. We have data classes that look very much like what you're doing with Pydantic. We have Marshmallow, which I hear often being used with like Flask and SQL Alchemy and Marshmallow. You may want to sort of give your perspective on like what the choices are out there and where things are learning from other libraries and growing from.
1: Yeah, I put serialization as in pickle, JSON, YAML, Toml, all of them into a different category message pack as a slightly different thing from from taking Python objects and trying to turn them into classes. So putting them to one side, because I think that's a kind of different problem that the pynantic and marshmallow and people aren't trying to solve exactly then there's data classes which are the kind of canonical standard library way of doing this they're great but they don't provide any validation so you can add a type in that says a name so age is an integer but data classes don't care as long whatever you put in will end up in that field and so that's useful if you have a fully type hinted system where you know already that something's an integer before you pass it to a data class but if you're loading it from a foreign foreign source, you often don't have that certainty. And so that's where libraries like Pydantic and Marshmallow come in. Actually, Pydantic has a wrapper for data classes. So you basically import the, the Pydantic version of data classes instead of normal data classes. And from there on, Pydantic will do all the validation, give you back a completely standard data class. But having done the validation, Marshmallow is probably, well, is undoubtedly the biggest most obvious competitor to Pydantic, and it's great. I'm not going to sit here and badmouth it. It's been around for longer, and it does a lot of things really well. Pydantic has just overtaken a a few months ago Marshmallow in terms of popularity, in terms of GitHub Stars. Whether you care about that or not is another matter. There's also Atras, which kind of predates data classes and is closer to data classes. But the, the big difference between Pydantic and Marshmallow and most of the other competitors is Pydantic uses type hints. So that one means you don't have to learn a whole new kind of micro language to define types. You just write your classes and it works. It works with, your, with MyPy and with your static type analysis. It works with your IDE, like well PyCharm now, because there's an amazing extension. I forgot the name of the guy who wrote it, but there's an amazing extension that I use the whole time with PyCharm that means it works seamlessly with Pydantic. And there's some exciting stuff happening. Microsoft, they emailed me actually two days ago one of their technical fellows, about extending their language server or their front-end for language server PyWrite to work with Pydantic and other such libraries. So because you're using standard type hints, all the other stuff, including your brain, should, in theory, click into place.
0: Yeah, that's really neat. I do think it makes sense to separate sort of the serialization file, save me a file, load a file type of thing out. I really love the way that the type hints work in there because you can almost immediately understand what's happening. It's not like, oh, this is the the way in which you describe the schema and the way you describe the transformations. It's just, here's a class. It has some fields. Those fields have types. That's all you need to know. And Pydantic will make the magic happen. What would you say the big difference between Pydantic and Marshmallow is? And I haven't used Marshmallow that frequently, so I don't know it super well.
1: I would first give the same proviso that so I haven't used it that much either. I probably, if I was more disciplined, I'd have sat down and used it for for some time before building Pydantic. But That's not always the way things work. The main difference is it doesn't use type hints or it doesn't primarily use type hints as its source of data about what type something is. Pydantic is around, from my memory, I can check, but significantly more performant than than Marshmallow.
0: Yeah, you actually have some benchmarks on the site and we could talk about that in a little bit uh, and compare those, yeah.
1: Yeah, so just, just briefly, it's about two and a half times faster. The advantage of Marshmallow at the moment is it has more logic around customizing how you serialize types. So when you're going back from a class to a, a dictionary or list of dictionaries and then out to, to JSON or whatever, Marshmallow has some really cool tools there, which Pydantic doesn't have yet. And I'm hoping to build into V2, some more powerful ways of customizing serialization.
0: Okay, fantastic. This portion of Talk Python is brought to you by 45 Drives. 45Drives offers the only enterprise data storage servers powered by open source. They build their solutions with off-the-shelf hardware and use software-defined open source designs that are unmatched in price and flexibility. The open source solutions 45Drives uses are powerful, robust, and completely supported from end to end. And best of all, they come with zero software licensing fees and no vendor lock-in. 45 drives offer servers ranging from four to 60 bays and can guide your organization through any sized data storage challenge. Check out what they have to offer over at talkpython.fm 45 drives. If you get in touch with them and say you heard about their offer from us, you'll get a chance to win a custom front plate. So visit talkpython.fm 45 drives, or just click the link in your podcast player. Let's dive into it. And I want to you know, talk about some of the the core features here. Maybe we could start with just you walking us through a simple example of creating a class and then taking some data and parsing over. And you've got this nice example right here on the homepage. I think this is so good to just sort of look at. There's a bunch of little nuances to cool things that happen here that I think people will benefit from.
1: Yeah. So you're obviously defining your class user here very simple inheritance from base model, no decorator. I thought about at the beginning that like this should work for people who haven't been writing Python for the last 10 years and where decorators look like strange magic. I think using inheritance is the obvious way to do it. And then obviously we define our fields. The key thing really is, is that the type int, int in the case of ID is, is used to define what type that field's going to be. And then if we do give it a value, as we do with name, that means that the field is not required. It has a default value. And obviously we can infer the type there from the default, which is a string. Then signup timestamp is obviously an optional date time. So it can be none. Uh, and critically here, you could either enter none or leave it blank. And it would again, again, be none. And then we have friends, which is a more complex type. That's a, a list of integers. And the cool stuff is because we're just using Python type int, we can burrow down into lists of dicts, of lists, of sets, of whatever you like within reason and it will all continue to work. And then looking at the external data, again, we see a few things
0: like we were talking about the coercion. Right, this external data is just a dictionary that you probably have gotten from an API call, but it could have come from anywhere. It doesn't have to come from there.
1: Right, exactly, anywhere outside. But right now we've got it as far as being a dictionary. So
0: we're, the, the point here is
1: we're doing a bit of coercion. So the trivial converting from a string one, two, three to, to the number 123, but then a bit more complex parsing the date and co- converting that into a date object.
0: Right, so you have the in here the, the, the data that's passed in, you've got a quote, 2019-06-01 and a time. And this is notoriously tricky because things like JSON don't even support dates. Like they'll right. freak out if you try to send one over. So you just got this string, but it'll be turned into a date.
1: Yeah, and we do a whole bunch of different things to try and do all of the sensible date formats. There's obviously a limit as how far to go, because one of the things Pythantic can do is it can interpret integers as dates using Unix timestamps. And if they're over some threshold in about two centuries from now, it assumes they're in milliseconds. So it works with milliseconds, which are Unix milliseconds, which are often used, but it does also lead to confusions when someone puts in one, two, three as a date and it's three seconds after 1970. <laughs> there are like there's an ongoing debate about exactly like what you should try and coerce and when it gets magic. But for me, it's there's a number of times I've just found it incredibly useful to that it just works. So for example, the the string format that Postgre uses when you use to JSON just works with Pydantic. So you don't even have to think about whether that's come through as a date or as a string until you're worried about the limit of performance. Most of that stuff just works.
0: Yeah, then one of the things that I think is super interesting is you have these friend IDs that you're passing over. And you said in PyDanda it gets a list of integers. And in the external data, it is a list of sometimes integers and sometimes strings. But once it gets parsed across, it not just looks at the immediate fields, but it looks at, say, things inside of a list and says, oh, you wanted a list of integers here. This, this is a list It has a string in it, but it's like quote three, so it's fine.
1: Yeah, and this is where where it gets cool because we can go recursively down into the rabbit hole and it will continue to validate. One of the, the tricky things that I think is what most people want, but where our language fails us is about the word validation because quite often validation sounds like I'm checking the input data is in the form that I said. That's kind of not what Py- Pydantic's doing. It's optimistically trying to parse. It doesn't care what the list contains, in a sense, as long as it can find a way to make that into an int. So this wouldn't be a good library to use for for like unit testing and checking that something is the way that it should be because it's going to accept a million different things. It's going to be as lenient as possible in what it will take in. But th- that's by design.
0: Yeah. The way to take this external di- dictionary and then get Pydantic to parse it is you just pass it as keyword arguments to the class constructor. So you say user of star star dictionary. So that'll you know explode that out to keyword arguments. And that's it. That runs the entire parsing, right? That's super simple.
1: Yeah. And that's, again, by design to make it just the simplest way of doing it. If you want to do crazy complex stuff, like constructing models without doing validation, because you know it's already been validated, that's all possible. But the the simplest interface, just calling in it on the class is designed to, to work and do the validation.
0: Yeah, cool. One thing I think is really neat and not obvious right away is that you can nest these things as well, right? Like I could have a shopping cart and the shopping cart could have a list of orders and each order in the in that list could be a PyDantic model itself, right? Exactly. And, and
1: it's probably an open question as to how complex we should make this first example. Maybe it's already too complicated. Maybe it doesn't demonstrate all the power, but... Yeah, I, I think it's probably about right. But yeah, you can go recursive, you can even do some crazy things like the root type of a model can actually not itself be a lit- sequence of fields, it can be a list itself. So there, are, there is a long tail of complex stuff you can do. But, but you're right, the, the inheritance of different models is a, a really powerful way of defining types. Because in reality, our models are never nice, key and value of different types, they always have complex items deeper down.
0: Right, that's really cool. And on top of these, I guess we can add validation. Like you have the, you said the very optimistic validation. Like if in the friends list, it said one, two comma Jane, well, it's probably going to crash when it tries to convert Jane into an integer and say, no, 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 this is wrong. And it gives you a really good error message. It says something like the third item in this list is Jane and that's not an integer, right? It doesn't just go, well, data is (laughs) bad, you know, too, too bad for you.
1: Yeah, but you, you could decide, perhaps Jane's a strange case, but if you wanted the word one, O-N-E, to somehow work, you could you could add your own logic relatively trivially via a decorator, which said, okay, cool, if we get the word one or the word two or the word three, then we can convert them to the equivalent integers, and that's relatively easy to add.
0: Yeah, cool. Now, one thing that, I guess the scenario where people run into this often, run into working with PyDantic, is it's sort of the exchange layer for Fast API, which is one of the more popular API frameworks these days, and you just say your API function takes some PyDantic model and it returns some PyDantic model and, you know, magic happens. But if you're not working in that world, if you're not in Fast API, and most people doing web development these days are not because, you know, it's the most popular framework and it's also certainly not the most popular legacy framework. So you can do things like, these models directly in your code let it do the validation there and then if you need to return the whole object graph as a dictionary you can just say model.dict right yeah
1: and also model.json and that will take it right out to json as a string yeah so it'll, it will turn a string of that json yeah and you can even swap in more performant json encoders and decoders and this is where i was talking about like there's already some power in what you can do here and which fields you can exclude And it's pretty powerful, but like, it's as as I say, something in in V2 that we might look at to make even more powerful is is customizing how you do this.
0: Nice. You might expect to just call .dict and it converts it to a dictionary, kind of reverses it, if you will. But there's actually a lot of parameters and arguments you can pass in to have more control. Do you want to talk about maybe just some of the use cases there?
1: Yeah. As we see here, you can choose to include specific fields and the rest will be excluded by default. You can... So exclude, which will exclude certain fields and the rest will be included by default. Those include and exclude fields can do some pretty ridiculously crazy logic going recursively into the models that you're looking at and excluding specific fields from those models or specific items from lists even. Some of the code, I forget who wrote that, but like I wrote the first version of it. I wrote the second or third version of it. And I was looking through about the 10th version of it the other day. And it is some of the most complex bits of Pydantic. But that's amazingly powerful. And then well, we didn't talk about aliases, but you can imagine if you were interacting with a JavaScript framework, you might be using camel case on the front end for like user name with a capital N, but have user underscore name in, in Python world where we're using underscores. We can manage that by setting aliases on each field. So saying that the user underscore name field has the alias user upper N name, and then we can obviously export to a dictionary using those aliases, if we wish.
0: Oh, that's cool. So you can program Pythonic style classes, even if you're consuming, say, a Java or C Sharp API that clearly uses a different format or style for its naming.
1: Exactly. And you can then export again to back to those aliases when you want to go on to like pipe it on down your data processing flow or however you're going to do it. And in fact, one of the things that will come up in future will be different aliases for import for on the in, inside in way and the out way. But until that, so far, there's just one, but that's powerful. And then you can exclude fields that have defaults. So if you're trying to save that data to, addiction, to a database and you don't want to save more than you need to, you can exclude stuff where it has the default value and you can exclude... Fields which are none, which again is often the same thing, but there are subtle cases where those are different requirements.
0: Yeah. And that also might really just, even if you're not saving it to a database, you know, that will lower the size of the JSON traffic between, say, microservices or something like that. If you don't need to send the defaults over, especially the nuns, because they're probably going to go to the thing they get and go, give me the value or none in whatever language they're using, right? Something to that effect. So it'll mean the same. Yeah. So we have
1: complex stuff here. So we have exclude unset and exclude defaults. So you can decide exactly how you want to exclude it to get just the fields that, that are actually live as it were that have custom values.
0: Yeah, so you have this dict thing which will turn a dictionary, and then you have the JSON one, which is interesting. We talked about that one. It also you I mean, also that, have copy. So you can is that like a shallow copy if you want to clone it off or something? It can be a
1: deep copy, but you can update some fields on the way through. So there are multiple different contexts where you might want to do that, where you want different models, where you can go and edit one of them and not and not damage the other one, or you want to modify a model as you're copying it. We also have field, a setting on config that prevents you that makes fields pseudo immutable, so doesn't allow you to change that value, doesn't stop you changing stuff within that value because there's no way of doing that in Python. But that's another case where you might want to use copy because you've set your model up to be effectively static, and you want to create a new one if you're being Super careful and strict, you would say, I'm never going to modify my model. I'm just going to copy it when I want a new one.
0: Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Certain things you could enforce that they don't change, like strings and numbers. But if it's a list, like the list can't point somewhere else, but what's in the list, you can't really do anything about that. Right. Yeah. So another thing that I think is worth touching on that's interesting is there's some obvious things that are the types that can be set for the field types and then uh, the data exchange conversion types, bools, integers, floats, strings, and so on. But then it gets, further, it gets more specialized down there as you go. So, for example, you can have unions, you can have frozen sets, you can have iterables, callables, network addresses, all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah,
1: we try and support almost anything you can think of from the Python standard library. And then if you go on down, we get to a whole bunch of things that, that, are even, that aren't supported or don't have an obvious equivalent within the standard library, but where if you go on down to... Pydantic types on the right. So we'll go with the way you're looking is in the example, yeah. but Pydantic types. Then we get into, into things that don't exist within, or well, there isn't an obvious type for in Pydantic in, in Python. There's a kind of subtle point here that like often these types are used to enforce more validation. So what's returned is an existing Python type. So here we have file path, which is returns a path, but it just guarantees that that file exists and directory path similarly. It's just a path, but it will confirm that it is a directory. An email string just returns you a string, but it's validated that it's a legitimate email address. But then some do more complex stuff. So name email will return you, allow you to split out names and email addresses and and more complex
0: things. Got credit cards, colors, URLs, all sorts of good stuff there. Yeah.
1: Yes. So there's a Mexican bank called, excuse my pronunciation, Savenka, who use the credit card field for all of their validation of credit card numbers.
0: Yeah. It's super interesting. And you think about how do you do this validation? How do you do these conversions yourself? And not only do you have to figure that out, but then you've got to do it in the context of like a larger data conversion. And here you just say, this field is a type email and it either is an email or it's going to tell you that it's invalid. Right. Yeah. I like this a lot. You know, one thing that we've been talking about that's pretty straightforward is using this for APIs, right? Like Somebody's doing a JSON post and you get that as a dictionary in your web framework and then you kind of validate it and convert it and so on. But it seems like you could even use this for like web forms and other type of things, right? Somebody's submitting a some kind of ATP post of a form and it comes over if you want to say these values are required, this one's an email and so on.
1: Yeah, so all of the form validation for multiple different projects I've built, some open source, lots proprietary, use Pylantic for form validation and use the error messages directly back to the user. I've got quite a lot of JavaScript that that basically works with Pydantic to build forms and do validation and return that validation to the user. I've never quite gone far enough to really open source that and push it as a React plugin or something, but it it
0: wouldn't be, hard to do. So let me ask you this, and maybe when you say React, maybe that's enough of an answer already. But if it's a server-side processing form and it's not a single-page sort of front-end framework style, a form submission often what you need to do is return back to them the wrong data right if they type in something that's not an email and over there it's not a number you still want to leave the form filled with that bad email and that thing that's not a number so you can say those are wrong keep on typing them is there a way to make that kind of round tripping work with pydantic i've tried and haven't been able to do it but if it's a if short it's a uh, no. front-end framework, it's easy to say, submit this form, catch the error, and show the error, because you're not actually leaving the page or clearing the form with a reload.
1: Yeah, the short answer is no, and it's something there's an issue about for V2 to return like the wrong value always in the context of each error. Often you kind of need it to make the error make sense, but at the moment it's generally not available and we will add it in V2. What I've done in, in React is obviously you've still got the values that were entered on the form, so... You don't clear any of the any of the, the inputs you just add the errors to those fields and set the whatever it is invalid header so they're nice and red
0: yeah exactly so if it was a front-end framework like reactor view i can see this working perfectly as you try to submit it for a form but if you got to round trip it with like a flask or pyramid or django form or something that doesn't have it then the fact that it doesn't capture the data i mean i guess you could return back just the original posted dictionary but yeah.
1: Yeah. So you, you have the original. Yeah. Like like you say, you've normally normally there. It's not too many different levels, and it's relatively simple to combine up the dictionary you got straight off form submission with the errors. But yeah, it's you're right. It's something we should improve.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure that you necessarily need to improve it because it it's mission is being fulfilled exactly how it is, and if it has this time, but well, sometimes it throws errors and sometimes it doesn't, and, and like just report. I don't know. It, it seems like you could overly complicated as well.
1: I think that there's like a, a really difficult challenge in Tragedy of the Commons in like someone wants a niche feature, someone else wants that feature, you get ten people wanting that feature, you feel under overwhelming pressure to implement that feature, but you forget that there's I forget, you know, there's like six thousand people who started it, but there's like ten, twelve thousand projects that use Pydantic. Those people haven't asked for that. Do they want it? Or would they actively prefer that Pydantic was simpler, faster, smaller, because exactly. you don't
0: Right. Part of the the beauty of it is it's so simple, right? I do, I get the value, I define the class, I star, star, take the data. And it's either good or it's crashed, right? If, If it gets past that line, you should be happy.
1: Yeah. And I think that like, I'm pretty determined to keep that stuff that simple. There are those who want to change it, who say initializing the class shouldn't do the validation. Then you should call a validate method. I'm not into that at all. There's stuff where I'm definitely going to keep it simple and the stuff where I'm really happy to add more things. So we were talking about custom types before. I'm really happy to add virtually, not virtually any, but like a lot of custom types when someone wants it because if you don't need it, it it just sits there and mostly doesn't affect people.
0: Right. If you don't specify a column or a field of that type, it doesn't matter. You'll never know it or care. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple of uh, comments in the live stream. I think maybe we can go ahead and touch on them about sort of future plans. So you did mention that there's going to be a, kind of a major upgrade of V2 and Carlos out there asks, is there any plans for PyDantic to give support for PySpark data frame scheme validation? Or you know, let me ask more broadly, like any of the data science world integration with like pandas or other, you know, numpy or other things like that.
1: There's been a lot of issues on, on NumPy NumPy arrays and like validating them using using list types without going all the way to to a like Python list because that that can have performance problems. I can't remember because it was a long time ago. But people, whoever it was, found a solution. And like PyTorch is used a lot now in in data science. If you look at the projects it's used in by Uber and by Facebook, they're like big machine learning projects. Fast Facebook's fast MRI library uses it. Like it's used a, a reasonable amount in like big data validation pipelines. So I don't know about PySpark, so I'm not going to be able to give a definitive answer for that. If you create an issue, I'll endeavor to remember to look at it <laughs> and, and have a look and give an answer, but-
0: You'll start your PySpark research project? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Also from Carlos related is like, what's the time frame for V2?
1: I, someone joked to me the other day that the release date was originally put down as the end of March, 2020, and that didn't get reached. And it's still, the short answer is that like, I need to, there are two problems. One is I need to set some time aside to, to sit there and build quite a lot of code. Second problem is the number of open PRs and the number of issues. I find it hard sometimes to bring myself to go and work on Pydantic when I have time off because a lot of it is like the trawl of going through issues and reviewing pull requests. And when I'm not doing my day job of writing code, I want to like write code on something fun and not have to review other people's code because I do that for a, for a day job quite a lot. So I've had like a bit of a, a trouble getting my like back in gear to go and, and like work on Pydantic because I feel like there's 20 hours of reviewing other people's code before I can do anything fun. And yeah. I think one of the solutions to that is I'm just going to start building V2 and ignore some pull requests and might have to break some eggs to make an omelet. But I think that that's better.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, and also in your defense, a lot of things were planned for March,
1: 2020. Yeah. and got That is true. That is true. I have sat at my desk in my office for a total of about eight hours since then. Yeah. So I haven't been back to the office in London at all. So, so yeah.
0: I would hope this year. Yeah, cool. Talk Python to me is partially supported by our training courses. Do you want to learn Python, but you can't bear to subscribe to yet another service? At Talk Python Training, we hate subscriptions too. That's why our course bundle gives you full access to the entire library of courses for one fair price. That's right. With the course bundle, you save 70% off the full price of our courses, and you own them all forever. That includes courses published at the time of the purchase, as well as courses released within about a year of the bundle. So stop subscribing and start learning at talkpython.fm slash everything. And then related to that, a Risky Chance asks, where should people who want to contribute to PyDataX start? And I would help you kick off this conversation by just pointing out that you have tagged a bunch of issues as help wanted and then also maybe reviewing PRs, but uh, you know, what else would you add to that?
1: I, I think the first thing I would say is, and I know this isn't the most fun thing to do, but like if people could help with reviewing discussions and issues.
0: Like triage type stuff? Yeah,
1: just but there's, but if you go onto, onto discussions, we use the, the GitHub discussions, which maybe people don't even see, but like <laughs> these are all questions you can go in and answer if someone has a problem. Lots of them aren't that complicated. I know that's perhaps not what risky really chance meant in terms of like, Writing code and that's obviously for some of us where the fun lives, but like these questions would be enormously helpful if, if people could have like, you can see some of them are answered and that's great, but there are others that aren't. And then yeah, when I reviewing pull requests would be the second most useful thing that people could do. And then if there are help wanted issues, just checking that we're still, still on for it and it's the right time to do it. And then I do love submissions. I noticed today there were 200 and something people who've contributed to Pydantic. So I do do my best to support. Anyone who comes along, however inexperienced or or experienced building features or fixing bugs.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Another thing I want to talk to you about, is this the right one? I believe. No, the validating decorator. Well, let's talk about validators first. We touched on this a little bit. So one thing you can do is you can write functions that you decorate with this validator decorator and says, this is the function whose job is to do a deeper check on a field, right? So you can say this is a validator for name, this is a validator for username or validator for email or whatever. And those functions are ways in which you can take better control over like what is a valid value and stuff like that, right?
1: Yeah, but you can do more, you don't. You can't just be stricter as in raise an error if it's not how you want it. You can also change the value that you're going to, that's come in. So you can see in the first case of name contains a space, we check that the name doesn't contain a space as a dummy example, but we also ret- return title. So capitalize the first letter. So you can also change the value you're going you're gonna to put in. So coming back to the date case we were we were hearing about earlier, if you knew your users were going to use some very specific date format of day of the week as a, as a string, followed by day of the month, followed by year in Roman numerals, you could like spot that with a regex, have your own logic to do the validation, and then if it's at any other date, pass it through to the normal Pydantic logic, which will carry on and and do its normal stuff on strings.
0: Cool, now this stuff is pretty advanced, but you can also do simple stuff like set an inner class, which is a config, and just set things like any string strip off the white space or lowercase all the strings or stuff like that, right?
1: Yeah, and there's allow mutation, which you've got to there, which is super helpful. That's where we can stop fields from being modified, There's extra there, which is something people often want, which is what do we do with extra fields that we haven't defined on our model? Do we, is that an error? Do we just ignore them or do we allow them and just like bung them on the class and we won't have any type hints for them, but they are there if we
0: want them. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about is really interesting because part of what I think makes Pydantic really interesting is its deep leveraging of type hints, right? Mm -hmm. And in Python, type hints are a suggestion. They're things that make our editors light up they are things that if you really, really tried, I don't think most people do this, but you could run something like MyPy against it, and it would tell you if it's accurate or not. I think most people just put it as there's extra information. You know, Maybe PyCharm or VS Code tells you you're doing it right or gives you better autocomplete. But under no circum- or almost no circumstance does having a function called add that says x colon int comma y colon int only work if you pass integers, right? You could pass strings to it and probably get a concatenated string out of that Python function because there's no, it's not like C++ or something where it compiles down and checks the Mm -hmm. thing, right? But you also have this validating decorator thing, which it seems to me like this will actually sort of add that runtime check for the types. Is that correct? That's exactly
1: what what it's designed to do. It's always been a kind of like interest to me, almost a kind of, Yeah, just to kind of experiment to see whether this is possible, whether we could like have semi strictly typed logic in Python. I should say before we go any further, this isn't to be used on like every function. It's not like Rust where doing that validation actually makes it faster. This is going to make calling your function way, way slower because inside validate arguments, we're going to go off and do a whole bunch of logic to validate every field. But there are situations where it can be really useful and where creating that pydantic model was a bit onerous, but where we can just bang on the decorator and get some validation
0: kind of for free. Right, because the decorator basically does the same thing. I mean, sorry, the classes do the same thing as this decorator might. But instead of having a class, you have arguments.
1: And under the hood, what validate arguments is doing is it's inspecting that function, taking out the arguments, building them into a pydantic model, and then running the input against that into that pydantic model and then using the result to call on the to call the function.
0: Yeah, and that sounds like more work than just calling the function for sure. It depends on how much it does, right? Yeah. Does it cache that kind of? Does it like cache the class that it creates when it decorates a function? It caches the model, yeah. same as we do in other places. But yes, it's still a lot
1: more like pedantic fast for for data validation, but it's data validation, not a compiler, <laughs> and like
0: yeah. So maybe this would make sense if like, I'm writing a data science library, and at the very outer shell, I pass in a whole bunch of data, then it goes off to all sorts of places. Maybe it might make sense to put this on the, the boundary, yeah. entry point type of thing, but nowhere else.
1: Yeah, exactly, where someone's going to find it much easier to see a pedantic error saying these fields were wrong rather than seeing some strange matrix that comes out the wrong shape because right. they passed in something as a, as a
0: string, not an int. Or none type has no attribute such and such. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Right, that, that standard error they always run into. Okay, that's pretty interesting. Let's talk a little bit about speed. You have talked about this a couple of times, but it, maybe it's just worth throwing up a simple example here to put them together. So we've got Pydanic, we've got Adders, we've got validier which I've never heard about, but very cool, Marshmallow, and a couple of others like Django REST Framework and Cerebus. So it has the all of these in, in relative time to some benchmark code that you have, but it basically gives it as a percentage or a factor of performance, right?
1: Yeah. And the first thing I'll say is that there are lies, damn lies, and, and benchmarks. Like you'll get, you might well get different results. But my impression, from what I've seen, is that PyDantic is as fast, if not faster, than the other ways of doing it in Python, short of writing your own custom code in each place to be like. Yeah, to do manual validation, which is a massive pain. And if you're doing that, you probably want to go and write it in a proper compiled language anyway.
0: Right, right. Or maybe just use uh, Cython on some little section, something like that, right? Where So
1: all of Pydantic is compiled with Cython and is about twice as fast. If you install it with PIP, you will get mostly the, the compiled version. There are binaries available for Windows, Mac and Linux, Windows 64-bit, not 32. And maybe some other extreme, and it will compile for other operating systems. So it's already faster than than just calling Python. Well, I don't know about whether the validation with Pydantic that's compiled is faster than raw Python, but like it'll be of the same order of magnitude.
0: Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Okay, I didn't realize it was compiled with Cython. That's great. Yeah, you know, it's part of the magic, huh? Making it faster. Yeah. So that
1: was David Montague year and a half ago, put an enormous amount of effort into it, and yeah, about doubled the performance. It's Python compiled with Cython rather than real Cython code so it's it's not as C speed but it's it's faster than just calling Python.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Cython taking the the type hint information and working so well with it these days. It probably was easier than it used to be or didn't require as many changes as it might otherwise.
1: I think it's an open question whether Cython is faster with type hints. It does it's in places actually adding type hints makes it slower because it does its own checks that a thing is a string when you've said it's a string but yeah I think it does use it in places
0: yeah I was thinking more like you don't have to rewrite it in Python like you don't have to convert Python code to Python code where it has its own sort of descriptor language but like if you have Python code that's type annotated it'll take that and and run with it these days
1: I think it isn't any faster or any better because of the type ins much although someone out there is an expert and I don't want to say that so I'm not sure <laughs>
0: yeah I hear you. All right. Another thing I want to touch on is the data model code generator. You want to tell us about this thing? What is this?
1: I haven't used it much, but yes, yeah, so what we haven't talked about
0: here this is just what it is. Yeah.
1: Is JSON schema, which is what Sebastian Ramirez implemented a couple of years ago when he was first starting out on, on FastAPI. And it's one of the coolest features of FastAPI and, and Pydantic is that for once you've created your model, you don't just get model and model validation. You also get a schema generated for your model. And in FastAPI, that's automatically created with Redoc into really smart documentation. So you don't even have to think about documentation most of the time. If it's internal or it's a not widely used API, and even if it's w- widely used, add some doc strings, and you've got yourself like amazing API documentation just straight from your model and data model code generation. As I understand it, is is generating those JSON schema schemas for models. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I think so. It feels to me like it's the reverse of what you described from what oh. Sebastian has created, right? Like it, given one of these open API definitions, it will generate the Pydantic model for you, right? So if I was going to consume an API and I'm like, well, I got to write some Pydantic models to match it. Like you could run this thing to say, well, give me a good shot at getting pretty close to what it's going to be. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I had it around the wrong way. But yeah, <laughs> my instinct is, I haven't used it, but that it gets you it does ninety percent of the work for you. And then there's a bit of like manual tinkering around the edge to to change some of the types, I suspect. But like, yeah,
0: really useful. Yeah, and it supports different frameworks and stuff. And I haven't used it either, but it just seemed like it was a, a cool thing related to sort of quickly get people started if they've got something complex to do with Pydantic. So for example, I built this weather real-time weather live weather data service for one of my classes over at weather.talkpython.fm and I built that in fast API. And it exchanges hydantic models, and all you gotta do in order to see the documentation is just go to slash docs and then it gives you the JSON schema. So presumably I could point that thing at this and then it would generate and go
1: back to the back to the model. Exactly. you yeah. get
0: a fairly complicated hydatic model pre built for me, which I think is pretty excellent. Yeah. All right, it's it's
1: so worth saying maybe you disagree, but I think the redoc version of the documentation or like auto Docs is even smarter than that one. I don't know if you've got it. Yeah, that one I think is even yeah. smarter.
0: Oh yeah, this is a really nice one. I like this one a lot. Yeah, it even gives you the responses there. It could be 200 or 422, which I did build that into there, but I didn't expect it to actually know. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's very cool. So they're both there, either slash docs or slash redoc. Uh, fast API will pull them.
1: You can switch one, or one off or change the endpoints, but yeah.
0: Yeah, and by the way, if you're putting out a, a fast API API and you don't want public documentation, make sure that you set docs, the docs URL and the redox URL to none in, when you're creating your app or your API instance. So yeah, that's always on unless you take action. So you better be sure you want to... Or you
1: can do what I've done, which is protect it with authentication so that front-end developers can use it, but it's not publicly available. So if you're building like a React app, it's really useful to have your front-end engineers be able to go and see that stuff and, and understand what the fields are. But it's a bit of a weird thing to, to make public, even if there's nothing like particularly sensitive. So yeah, you can put it right. behind authentication.
0: Yeah, yeah, very good. All right, you already talked about the PyCharm plugin, but maybe give us a sense for why do we need a PyCharm plugin. I have PyCharm, and if it has the type information, a lot of times it seems like it it's already good to go. So what do I get from this PyCharm plugin? Like, why should I go put this in? So
1: once you've created your model, if we think about the, the example on the, on the index page again, we would, once we've created our model, accessing .friends or .id or .name, will work and Pydantic will, uh, sorry, a PyCharm will correctly give us information about, we'll say, okay, first name exists, like foobar name doesn't exist. It's a string, so it makes sense to add it to another string. But when we initialize a model, it doesn't know how Like the init function of Pydantic just looks like take all of the things and pass them to some magic function that will then do the validation.
0: I see. It looks like star star kwrgs. Good luck. Go read the docs. Yeah, exactly it.
1: that. Um, but this is where the PyCharm plugin comes in because it, it gives you documentation on the arguments.
0: Okay, so it looks at the fields and their types and says, well, these are actually keyword arguments to the constructor, of the initializer. Yeah. Okay, yeah, got it. And we'll That's very cool.
1: And it will also, I don't even know what it does. It, I just use it the whole time and it works. You know those <laughs> things, but you don't even think about them. But Yeah,
0: cool. So it gives you auto-completion and type checking, which is cool for the initializer, right? So if you were to... Try to pass in something wrong, it lets let you know. Also, it says it supports uh, refactoring. If you refactor the uh, keyword.
1: One of the really useful things it does is uh, when we talked about validators, which are, are done by a decorator, they are class methods, very specifically because you might think that they're instance methods and you have access to self. You don't, because they're called before the model itself is initialized. So the first argument to them should be class CLS. It will automatically give you an error if you put self which is really helpful when you're creating those validators, because otherwise, without it, PyCharm assumes it's an instance method, gives you self, and then you get yourself into hot water when you access self.userid, and it, it breaks.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because it's converting and checking all the values, and then it creates the object and then yeah. assigns the fields, right? Okay.
1: Yeah. So we can access other values during validation from the values keyword argument to the validator but not via like self. user ID or whatever.
0: Yeah, cool. And Risky Chance loves that the, it works with aliases too, which is pretty cool.
1: Oh yeah, so it does. It does lots of cool things. I'm really impressed by it. It's one of the coolest things that come out of out of Pydantic.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I've installed it. And I'm like, I'm sure my Pydantic experience is better, but I just don't know what is, nor- what is built in and what is coming from this thing. So yeah, that's...
1: We're also used to, to PyCharm just working on so many things that you don't even notice like... Yeah, you only notice when it doesn't work, so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we're getting a little short on time, but I did want to ask you about uh, Python DevTools, because you talked about having Pydantic work well with DevTools as well. Yeah. What, what are these? You are also the author of Python DevTools, yeah? Yeah, what is this?
1: For me, it's just a debug print command that pr- stuff pretty and gives it color and tells me what line it was printed on. And I use it the whole time in development instead of print. Yeah. And it, obviously, I wanted it to, to show me my Pydantic models in a, in a pretty way. So it has integration. There are some hooks in in DevTools that allow it to, you, to customize the way stuff's printed. And I actually know that the author of Rich, he slightly frustratingly has used a different system all over again, but he's also supported Pydantic. So Pydantic will also print pretty with, with Rich as well as with DevTools.
0: Yeah, cool. Okay, really nice. Yeah, Rich is a great TUI, <laughs> Terminal User Interface library for Python? Yeah, it's cool.
1: It's different from DevTools. I wouldn't say they compete. DevTools is, for me, it's just, it does have some other things, some timing tools and some formatting, but like, for me, it's just the debug print command that Python never
0: had. So what's the Pydantic plugin here, or connection rather here? So if I I debug out of DevTools a model, I get just a really nice representation?
1: Yeah, exactly that. It's not showing it, uh, it's because you're in the DevTools docs. There's some other docs in Pydantic to give you an Mm -hmm. example. It'll give you a nice example if it expanded out rather than like squashed into one line. So, usage with DevTools right, is the there last go. Got usage Got it. There.
0: Yeah. yeah right so, you see right that here. The yeah.
1: user flipped out nicely instead of, yeah, done like that. I suppose that that's kind of that demonstrates its usage for me.
0: Yeah. Perfect. That looks really good. It's nice to be able to just print out these sorts of things and see them really quickly. What's the just basic string representation of a PyDenic model? Like, for example, if I'm in PyCharm and I hit a breakpoint, or I'm just curious what something is and I just print it, right? like PyCharm will like put a little grayed out string mm-hmm. stir representation. It's right, right there.
1: I think that's the string representation you're looking at right there.
0: Yeah, perfect. So you get a really rich sort of view of it embedded in the editor or if you print it. And if you
1: use repra, then you get basically the
0: u- wrapped in, in user. All right, okay. So it gives you as if it were Yeah. you are trying to cr- construct it out of that data. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Oh, well, you know, we've covered a bunch of things and I know there's a lot more. I don't recall whether we talked about this while we were recording or whether we talked about it before and we were just setting up what we wanted to talk about. But it's worth emphasizing that this is not just a fast API validation data exchange thing. It works really great. A lot of the stuff happens there. But if you're using Flask, if you're using Pyramid, if you're using, I don't know about Django so much because of the models and stuff there. But There is, someone's built Django, Django admin. So one of the things we haven't talked about as well is
1: settings management, which Pydantic has some pretty powerful features for. And actually, one of the things was added in 1.7 or 1.8 was a, like basically a system for plugins to do even crazier stuff with settings. So not just loading them from environment variables and from .m files, but also from Docker secrets. Now we have an interface to, to load them from kind of anywhere. So you can build your own interface for, for loading settings from, from places, but someone's built a Django settings tool with Pydantic to, to kind of validate your Django settings using Pydantic. But yeah, I think it's what's yeah. cool about Pydantic is it's not part of a kind of walled garden of tools that all fit together. Well, that have to be used with each other. It fits with Pydantic, but it's used in, in lots of other big projects, or you can just yeah. use it in Flask in or in, in Django or wherever you like.
0: Right, if you're reading JSON files off a disk, it could totally make sense to use it, or yeah. you're doing screen scraping, potentially it, it makes sense, or just calling an API, but you're the client of that API. It could totally make sense to do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, just want to point out, like it's super broadly applicable, not just uh, where people see it being really used. And uh, yep. Nick H out there is definitely going to try this with Django. So awesome. That's cool. Yeah. I, so let's wrap this up with just, I know we spoke a little bit about V2 and the timing. Like what are the major features that you think, like what are the highlights that people should look forward to or be excited about?
1: There's a bigger problem at hand, which is the Python 3.10 at the moment in PEP I'm going to try and remind myself of the exact number, but like in PEP 6.9, no, in 5.6.3, basically all type hints become strings instead of Python objects. And so, and like that's been available
0: in future. Right. Is that the lazy evaluation of the annotation, something like that?
1: But it, it's not even a lazy evaluation. It's a non-evaluation. And it seems like unless Python themselves, the, the core team, are prepared to move on this and like be practical about things, it might be the Pydantic. Becomes either like hard to use or even not useful in three point ten. It sounds like really like they the. I'm talking at the Python Summit in PyCon US in May in the like language in the bit where people discuss it, and I'm going to try and put this forward. But like I had a conversation today just before you, I came online now with with someone who's created a pep that should fix this. But the current response from the core developers is is to refuse it. So I'm I'm like really worried and frustrated that might happen and lots of tools fast api pydantic typer and others again it get broken for the sake of principle effectively that type hints should only be used at, for static type analysis so we'll see what happens and normally with open source people find a way around but like i think that's really worrying and i'll create an issue on pydantic to track this properly but it is something to be aware of and it's something that like i think those of us who use these libraries need to like it's very easy to wait until after something's released and then be, then be frustrated it's important sometimes to notice before they're released and, and make a point.
0: Wow. Well, I'm really glad you pointed that out. I had no idea. I mean, I knew there were some minor behind the scene changes from a consumer perspective of type annotations, but that sounds like there's more going on for yeah. libraries like this.
1: There's a PEP that will fix this, which is PEP 649, which I have not yet read because I only got the email about it two hours ago. But if anyone's looking into it, if I will create an issue on, on Pydantic to talk about this, but... Something like this needs to happen. So Larry emailed me an hour or two hours ago to talk about this, but this is a really big problem that that we need to like prevent like breaking lots of cool stuff that's happening in Python.
0: All right. Well, I agree. <laughs> First impressions is I absolutely agree because I do think what you guys are doing, what you're doing with Pydantic, what is happening with FastAPI and these types of systems, it's a really fantastic direction and really building up on top of the type annotation world, and I would hate to see that get squashed.
1: What's incredible about it, just briefly, is that it's used by Microsoft in core bits of Office. It's used by by Uber, by the NSA, by like banks. It's used by JP Morgan, but it's also really easy to get started with at the very beginning. And it's it's wonderful for me that we can build build open source code that can be useful to like the biggest organizations in the world and to someone when they're first getting started. Not this idea that it has to be like... Dense and mainframe and impossible, or like Mickey Mouse and, and not worth using. Right, like fast API and Pydantic seem to be managing to be both.
0: I agree. I think they are absolutely so. Well, congratulations on building something amazing. And thank uh, you very hopefully, much, uh, Pep, cool. <laughs> Six four nine. keeps things rolling smooth. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that gets ironed out. All right, now we're pretty much out of time. But before I let you out here, let me ask the final two questions. So if you're going to write some code, if you're going to work on Pydantic, what editor do you use? I,
1: I use PyCharm.
0: Right on. And the Pydantic plugin, I'm guessing?
1: And the Pydantic <laughs> plugin, yeah.
0: <laughs> right on. And then if you've got a package out on PyPI that you think is interesting, maybe not the most popular, but you're like, oh, I ran across this thing that's amazing. You should you should know about it. I should probably
1: not break the rule and talk about my own, but, but like DevTools, which I talked about, is incredibly useful to me. And so I would spread the word a bit on that other than that I would just do a shout out to all of those packages that people don't see that are the bedrock of everything so from coverage to Starlit, which is the other library that's the basis of fast api sebastian's great and i i mean no offense to him but there's he stands on the shoulders of people who've done yeah, yeah. lots of lots of other things and and they're really really powerful so i would spare a bit of time for them if you're thinking of sponsoring someone think about like sponsoring ned who does coverage or any of those other like all bits of pytest all the workhorses that aren't particularly headline but are really, really valuable to, to every all of our like daily life writing code.
0: Yeah. And I'm gonna go with Vlad out there. It says uh many of us know about Pydantic because of Fast API. I agree, but you know Fast API, as you pointed out, absolutely stands on top of yeah. Starlet, which, you know, there's just this whole chain of things that each one adds their own special sauce, but all right, they're yeah. there because of
1: But but I should say again, Fast API is awesome. I didn't use it initially. I was I'm a contributor to AIO HTTP, which is also really cool, but I've, over the last year, become a complete convert to, to FastAPI. I use it, it's my like go-to tool now, so it's awesome.
0: Yeah, fantastic. All right, final call to action. People want to check out PyDantic, maybe they want to contribute to PyDantic, what do you tell them?
1: Go and have a read through the docs, and yeah, go from there. If you can make a tweet to the docs, to make it easier to read, if you can answer someone's question, or even create a feature, that would be, that's awesome. Cool, all right. And if I'm, if I'm not there immediately and I, I don't reply for weeks, I'm sorry, and I promise to as soon as I can.
0: <laughs> Fantastic, all right, Samuel, thanks for being on the show. It's been great to learn more uh, deep information about PyDantic because it's so simple to use it. It's easy to just skim the surface. Awesome, Michael, thank you very much. Yeah, you bet, bye-bye. Yes, bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest in this episode was Samuel Colvin, and it's been brought to you by 45 Drives and us over at TalkPython Training. Solve your storage challenges with hardware powered by open source. Check out 45 drives storage servers at talkpython.fm slash 45 drives and skip the vendor lock-in and software licensing fees. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube.